All right, so as we get into chapter 15, um, chapter 15 is a whole lot shorter than uh, the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the chapters in Revelation. There's only eight verses. So uh, hopefully we're going to make this a, a rather brief podcast. I'm hoping for 20 or 30 minutes. I said I'm going to try to make it brief last time and it ended up going an hour and a half. So uh, I'm probably not going to be just reading off scriptures as much as I was before talking about Old Testament references. I've put all these in the outline uh, that's found at jasonvalada.com. So if you want to go look up these references, make sure that I'm telling you uh, the right references. Please do that because I have been known to mix up 21 and 12 or, or, or misstate something or say Exodus 21 4 when I meant Exodus 22 4 um, that is uh, highly possible so please go and check those please go and read the context of each of those uh, Old Testament passages make sure that uh, make sure that I'm, I'm working with the text rightly um, definitely not infallible and that's something that you need to do whenever we study scripture uh, you need to um, make sure that the context is actually teaching what uh, the teacher is telling you that it's teaching. Uh, a lot of times that's where people get in trouble. So if you remember correctly, uh, last time, chapter 14, we, we were talking about uh, the harvest. We, we saw the, the Son of Man come forth with a sickle to reap, uh, and then we saw another angel come forth to reap, and he threw those uh, uh, those reaped into the winepress of the wrath of God. And we talked about uh, uh, the imagery of the harvest and how Jesus uh, used that same imagery of, of uh, sowing and reaping uh, to denote the preaching of the gospel he called uh, in in John, we, we saw that he called the uh, uh, gospel preachers that he was sending out, the, the disciples, he called them reapers. He says, you go and reap. You're going to reap on something that somebody else has sowed so that the sower and the reaper both will be receive fruit from the harvest and those kind of things. We saw the imagery of the harvest. And we we looked at some Old Testament texts in chapter 14 that were uh, alluding to uh, um, Babylon and and alluding to passages in the Old Testament where uh, God was calling his people to come out of Babylon, to to remove themselves from uh, Babylon. And we, of course, we applied those to uh, the situation in Revelation. And we talked about Babylon, uh, Jerusalem being characterized as, as Babylon and spiritually Egypt and Sodom and Revelation and all those kind of things. Things. And, and we saw that the God was harvesting, for lack of a better way to put it, the people, his people, out from those who oppressed him, out from those who were against him, out from his enemies, just as he did in the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to continue that imagery in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is only eight verses, and it is a, uh, I guess I would call it kind of an introduction to the final stages of, of Revelation. And what we're going to see in chapter 15 is uh, uh, um, an exodus imagery. Uh, we're going to see the people of God. Let me just give you the rundown before we even look at it and kind of tell you where we're going. Uh, we're going to see the people of God, the true people of God who are in Christ, those following the Lamb, um, are involved in a new exodus. It's pictured just like the exodus from Egypt when we're talking about Moses leading the people out of uh out of Egypt and the plagues that descended upon Egypt and the judgment of God descending upon Egypt, we're going to see the imagery uh, um, of a new exodus portrayed as the people of God are being called out from uh, their oppressors. And what's interesting is you see that uh, in this context, in the context of chapter 14 and 15, uh, what we're seeing is the people of God, those who are in Christ, are being called out from uh, the old Judaic religion 
in the old covenant system and the uh, the judgments that have been promised, the the uh, the the wrathful uh, judgments that were warned against in Deuteronomy twenty eight, Leviticus twenty six, are falling upon uh, the people who have not kept covenant, while God's people, His true people, the, who are uh, united with the Lamb, are coming out from those people, and so it is. Uh, it, it's portrayed as uh, a new exodus. It's portrayed as uh, um, the people. You know, we're going to see them crossing the sea and singing the song of Moses and all those kind of things in, in chapter uh, in chapter fifteen. And I don't have. Let me go ahead and put it up right here because I don't have all the text in front of me, and I probably it probably would be a good idea if I'm going to be reading it. So we'll look at Revelation chapter fifteen, and we're going to start. Like I said, there's only there's only eight verses, so it begins by this kind of uh, it's an introduction to what's about to be happening. He's going to show us the seven uh, seven angels with the seven last plagues and it says in verse one then i saw another sign in heaven this is john remember he's uh seeing these visions seeing these signs uh this sign was great and marvelous it this is what he saw seven angels who had seven plagues which are the last these are the last plagues and it defines why they are the last it says because in them the wrath of god is finished now these plagues that we're going to see are actually the bold judgments or the vile judgments, depending on how you define the word, depending depending on what your translation says. See, the bold judgments or vile judgments, usually I'm just used to calling them bold judgments, so that's what I'll probably call them throughout. But those bold judgments don't really start until uh, chapter 16. So this entire chapter is kind of a prequel. It's kind of a um, an initializing, an introduction to those judgments. Uh, they're going to be poured out in chapter 16, and I'm going to make a case there. I'll go ahead and give you the, a little heads up. I'm going to make a case there that uh, the bold judgments are actually a recapitulation of the trumpet judgments. Uh, they parallel in so many ways that the uh, disconnecting the two is just, to be honest, it's kind of unthinkable because they are there. It's pretty much an intensification uh, of what we've already seen. It's what we've already seen. Um, this is where a lot of people get mixed up when you're looking at Revelation. If you look at the Epistle of First John. He does the same thing in First John. Uh, what we're expecting as we open the pages of Revelation, we're expecting a news report. We're expecting this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. We're expecting a chronological survey of history, and that's not what Revelation or pretty much any apocalyptic literature gives us. What it gives us is kind of what I would call a spiral. Uh, it, it spirals the events, and then it, you know it'll come back around, and as that spiral gets deeper and deeper. The events that it's portraying intensify uh, until until we see the culmination of those things. Uh, for example, in the first judgments, it was uh, a fourth of the a fourth of the land, a fourth of the people, a fourth of the green grass was was destroyed, and all those things. Then in the trumpet judgments, we see a third, a third of the land destroyed, a third of the green grass, a third. And now in chapter sixteen, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but in chapter sixteen, we're going to see the entirety of the land destroyed, the entirety of the green grass, the entirety of the of those things. And so we're seeing the same thing, just with growing intensity and uh, and uh, from different vantage points. 
So that is the chronological aspect of how Revelation functions. And so what we see is these plagues, these angels, um, verse 1 is kind of an introduction that leaves us hanging. Verse 2 through 4 is is going to uh, uh, speak of something else, and then we're going to get back to the angels. But it says, he sees these seven angels who have the seven last plagues, which are the last, it says, because in them the uh, the uh, judgment of God, the, the wrath of God is finished. And this is introducing the pretty much the culmination of God's covenant judgment. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Uh, I said that this verse is kind of an introductory vision. Uh, it's going to be further explained in verses 5 through 8, which is the end of this chapter. Um, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to see that these are the bold judgments, but here these judgments and, and later as well they're called plagues, um, and, and the word plague is also used for the judgment in of the trumpets in Revelation verse nine uh, chapter nine verse twenty, uh, and so this first verse is kind of a superscript to the rest of the book. It says God's wrath will be finished with these seven seven plagues. Now what that what that the word finished there is the word teleo. It means uh, when something reaches its goal, when something accomplishes, when something uh, is fulfilled, when something has come to uh, the goal for which it was set forth, and so these these uh, seven plagues that we're going to uh, be that are going to be shown here, uh, especially in chapter sixteen, is where they're really going to be shown. These seven plagues uh, are going to uh, show us the completion of the covenant wrath of God, the covenant wrath of God, um, the, just, just by mentioning the seven plagues, the uh, seven plagues, it paints a vivid picture in the mind of those who were, were steeped in the Old Testament. Um, first of all, it would immediately draw your mind to Leviticus twenty six twenty one. This is the only other place in the Old Testament. And I'm using, remember, we're using the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, which would be the Old Testament of the Christians in Asia Minor and those who uh, didn't speak Hebrew and those kind of things, Gentile Christians. Um, it would have immediately brought to mind leviticus 26 21 uh the old testament text was the bible of the first century christians they read that through in the in church services and all those kind of things it says in in leviticus 26 21 if then you act with hostility against me and are, are unwilling to obey me he's talking about the covenant obeying the covenant i will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins now this is the only other place in the Old Testament where, or this is the only other place in the Bible where seven plagues is used. Uh, that phrase. Now, if you're reading ESV, uh, English Standard Version, it, the word plague is going to be omitted there, and it said, "I'm just going to strike you seven times for your sin." But it, the word plague is definitely there. It's there in the New American Standard, there in the King James Version, there in uh, several other versions. And this is a warning. Leviticus 26 is a warning of covenant judgment against Israel for breaking the covenant that they have uh, that God has set up with them uh, it's the only other place the f- phrase is used and the plagues of Egypt are also promised to come upon national Israel if they fail to keep the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 uh, verses 60 and 61 we've read Deuteronomy 28 at length here throughout these chapters of Revelation so I'm not going to read it to you now but if you go and look at just the chapter Deuteronomy 28 it is the covenant stipulations the blessings and cursings for keeping the covenant with God and breaking the covenant with God and one of those cursings of breaking the covenant with God uh, is that the plague of Egypt will come upon you and that's what we're going to see we've already seen it a little bit in the trumpet judgments but that's what we're going to see in these um 
in these final uh, depictions of the judgment upon upon national Israel, upon uh, uh, those who have broken covenant with God, um, the 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 mind couldn't. I mean, you couldn't. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a good parallel that would uh, parallel this in, in modern day, but I'm having a hard time coming up with it on the fly. But uh, you would you the words seven plagues would bring this to mind. Remember, these scriptures are read in uh, in. Uh, in the church service of the first century over and over again they were they were part of uh they were part of the worship uh, of of the church this uh the septuagint readings and those things and so the when you hear the seven plagues the seven last plagues the wrath of god is finished in these seven plagues you immediately start thinking well god promised seven seven plagues i'll plague you seven times for your sins if you break the covenant and they would have immediately been been thinking those things as well as the plagues in Egypt, I mean that is the that's the picture that that draws to your mind. Uh, he would you would recognize the reference throughout this chapter in these eight verses in chapter fifteen. We are going to have reference after reference of the Exodus from Egypt, uh, the Exodus Exodus of Israel from Egypt, and Moses leading the people out and and those kind of things. The plagues that uh, you know they affected the oppressors of God's people. Um, in a minute, the people in the next verse, people God's people. People are going to be seen on the sea, passing over the sea, passing on the sea. Uh, and, and God's people here in this chapter are singing the song of Moses. So it's just parallel after parallel after parallel depicting um, the uh, the uh, rescue of God's people out of Egypt. And what's, uh, what's dramatized here is... The vision is showing, just like we saw in the last chapter, that God is harvesting his people from among the oppressors, uh, and these people are, these people who are in Christ, uh, are going to be brought out of, uh, this, uh, oppressor in a new exodus. And that exodus is by the cross. It's by the gospel. It's by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what the focus of, of Revelation is on. Uh, verses two through four, kind of, um, I, I guess you'd call them a parenthesis. Uh, we've seen the the seven angels with the seven last plagues in verse one, and then that picture is going to resume in verse five. But in the meantime, in verses two through four, what we're going to see is this exodus that we've been talking about. This this new and and uh, perfect exodus, uh, most likely what the initial exodus pointed toward uh, the coming of uh, the coming of Christ. Christ and uh, his leading his people from uh, from their oppressors. It says, verse two says, and I saw this is John saying something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass. Some translations say beside the sea of glass um, holding harps of God harps uh, and verse three says and they sang the song of Moses the bond servant of God and the song of the lamb and then the song is described and we'll stop there for just a moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. The sea of glass mingled with fire. We've seen this before. Uh, the sea of glass uh, corresponds, a crystal sea, uh, corresponds to the brass laver in the tabernacle in the temple. Now, we talked about that before as we looked in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 4 or 5. Uh, I think it was 4, um, where we, we have seen what we're seeing there is the heavenly reality of what the earthly counterpart uh, depicted. Now, I'll give you a quick just uh, uh, refresher of what 
we talked about there. But if you want to uh, understand it fully, you need to go back and listen to uh, Revelation 4 if you're just jumping in. Uh, in the tabernacle that God that Moses uh, had, uh, God had Moses build, and in the temple that Solomon built, uh, God gave Moses a perfect and specific pattern of how this tabernacle was supposed to look, how the furniture was supposed to look, how these things were uh, supposed to be laid out. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that that tabernacle uh, was a copy, a, uh, a shadow of the perfect and true tabernacle, which is in heaven. And so when we see this crystal sea in the tabernacle and in the temple. If you look in the tabernacle, you can see it in Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. Uh, in the, the Solomon's temple, you can see it First 1 Kings chapter 7, uh, verse 23 through 26. Uh, they set up the altar. They set up the Holy of Holies. They set up the, all these things. There was a big brass laver in the middle, which was kind of a basin that held water. And that water was for washing purification rituals before you come to, before you come to the altar, before you come to the Holy of holies and, and those kind of things and so what you're seeing what we're seeing here is same thing we saw in the in the throne room of god in in chapter four of revelation is the picture of this uh this uh perfect reality of what was depicted upon earth we're seeing this in the throne room of god we're seeing the heavenly reality that the earthly tabernacle uh was was patterned after and this sea Imagine this, it's a parallel with the Exodus account. God's people are seen, God's true people are seen by John on this sea of glass or beside the sea of glass. It's a depending, you know, epi is the preposition in Greek and, you know, it has a nuance of meaning depending on the context. But regardless, they're seen on the sea of glass. They're seen coming out from their oppressors. They have, it says they've conquered the beast. They've conquered the image. They have not worshipped him. They've overcome him um it says that uh, they they they're victorious over him uh, they're victorious over his image they're victorious over the number of his name uh they're standing on the sea of glass and they're they're holding these harps and they're singing they're singing and what they're singing is described as the song of moses now it's almost uh, it's really strange to hear them to uh, see this vision john sees this vision of god's people who have overcome the beast and we know that they've overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony um, that's how they're victorious over the beast in the image they've refused to uh, bow to him they refuse to worship the uh, world system they refuse to give in to persecution and to economic sanctions and and all of those things that we've talked about so far in Revelation, uh, they refuse to do this, and John sees them now coming out from the oppressors who will uh, have the plagues of Egypt dropped in their lap, uh, coming out across this this sea, this crystal sea, this sea of glass, so to speak, and they are singing the song of Moses, the same song that the uh, original Israelites sang after they crossed the Red Sea that swallowed up the uh, the Egyptians who were chasing them. I'm sure you know that story. And so the picture that he's drawing here, the vision that he's seeing, it's drawing a parallel that pretty much can't be missed. I mean, they are they are uh, the the plagues have fallen on the oppressors. God's people are coming out across the sea and they're singing the song of Moses that the people sang after the Red Sea uh, encompassed the Egyptians and they were saved through it. You can't really get 
beyond that parallel you can't really dismiss that i mean it's it's uh it's so pushed to the forefront that it, it demands to be it demands to be heard even if you don't have a a firm grasp of the old testament surely just from just from sunday school you know the crossing of the red sea and you can see the parallels of them singing um and interestingly enough, I wasn't going to include this because I don't exactly have the references and I definitely don't have the literature in my possession, unlike some of the other things that I've seen. But there are some places where I've read, especially if you get Greg Beale's uh, really technical commentary, um, he talks about uh, Jewish Midrash uh, literature. Now, the the Midrash are uh, collections of sermons and homilies of Old Testament texts based from a Jewish perspective and, and all those kind of things. Um, in in, in one of the in discussing one of the psalms i think it was psalm 139 some of this jewish midrash literature speaks of the red sea as a crystallized kind of glass after the egyptians were drowned and the sea returned to normal uh i can't absolutely uh, definitively point you to that reference uh but i think it was interesting and it was uh, it's definitely uh, greg beale is not uh, not a shoddy scholar and his commentary is uh, uh very very technical you got to know you got to know some greek if you're going to uh, uh, look at that commentary so i'll point you to his his uh references on that if you want to look at those things but anyway what you see is just further proof that uh, this uh, vision is showing an exodus of god's people and what's striking is and we're going to see this more and more is that what we're seeing is an exodus out of uh, out of Judaism, an exodus an exodus out of the old covenant system, an exodus out of uh, um, out of. Uh, idolatrous worship of god i don't know how to put it any other way uh, there is no worship of god that does not come through the lamb and so what john sees here now we've talked about the harvest the first fruits of the harvest we've talked about the the in the last chapter the the sickles come forth and the the reaping begun and people were being brought out of uh, out, out of bondage and some were being brought into the wrath of god the wine press of god and what you see here through all of this remember the last thing we saw in the last chapter was blood at the horse's bridle for 200 miles for 1600 stadia uh, we've seen just uh, uh, the scene of bloodshed and and wrath and all those and now in the midst of all this you see uh, seven angels lining up to administer the last uh, covenant judgments upon the people but right in the midst of this I mean it's almost stuck in there like it shouldn't be there uh, verse 1 uh, says about the seven angels and then verse 5 picks up the seven angels with the seven plagues verse two through four it's almost like it's just stuck in there right in the midst of all this wrath and all this chaos you see god's people coming out from the people and this in this new exodus across the sea and they're singing the song of uh singing the song of moses we've we've already seen uh uh that uh um, the uh, the people uh, like the Exodus, you know, the Exodus of uh, the Israel from Egypt uh, was not a military victory. It was a, a, a victory of God's power over the gods of Egypt and over the Egyptian people. Uh, and the same thing you see here: the the people's conquering and holding fast uh, to their faith. Their their victory over the beast is not a military victory. It's not a a, a war being fought by the people. It's their holding to their faith in the midst of oppression and persecution uh they refuse to worship the beast or his image the beast uh, uh is rome and the harlot the, 
the Jewish leadership, uh, they've they've colluded together uh, to persecute the Christians. You see that throughout Acts. You see that uh, over and over again in the early Christian literature and the writings of the church fathers. Um, just uh, we've talked about this before, but I feel like you know sometimes there are people that come in that don't really understand the the context because they haven't listened to the previous episodes and how we've walked through the Book of Revelation. Uh, I'd encourage you to do that, but. What was going on, just as a reminder, was we've seen this over and over again. You can see it in Acts and, and so many other places, is that as long as uh, as long as uh, Rome uh, saw Christians as part of Judaism, they were actually protected. Uh, they were protected from being forced to worship the emperor and all those kind of things. And so uh, the Jews were doing all that they could to uh, make sure that the Romans knew that Christianity was not part of Judaism and one once that uh, once that identification was made, uh, Christians lost the protection. Their their religion was a, a religio religio is what's called a legal religion, and they were forced to worship the emperor. They were forced to pinch incense. And we've talked about this before that any time a, a Jewish guy would have uh, ought against his neighbor, he was a Christian, he would be he would accuse him before the Romans. The Romans would bring him in. Uh, this was not emperor wide empire wide persecution, but you. Usually it was uh, uh, depending on the province or the place, but the the Romans, the Roman magistrate would bring this uh, accused Christian in, and it didn't matter if he was guilty or innocent of any crime that he was being accused of. If he was accused of being a Christian, he was forced to uh, take a pinch of incense and offer it to the image uh, of the Caesar and say uh, a Kaiser Kurios. He was forced to say Caesar is Lord, and it didn't matter if he was guilty or innocent. If he refused to do that, he was he was executed or tortured as a Christian until he until he did recant his um his uh, profession, and so these uh, Roman and the Jewish leadership, the the Jewish people colluded together to, per- to have these Christians persecuted over and over again. We're going to see that in chapter seventeen. The beast uh, of Rome ultimately is going to turn on the harlot and devour her. I'm getting way off the subject, but here you see the people on the Sea of Glass. They stand on the the Sea of Glass, or some some say beside the Sea of Glass. They're holding these harps. They're the true people of God passing through the sea. Uh, the New Exodus prepared them to worship and they worship the true God and the song that they sing is it's called the song of Moses it's called the song of Moses and of the lamb but we'll take it one at a time and show you the song of Moses uh, the the song that they sing is characterized and named by the song of Moses because they're coming out of their oppressors and crossing through the sea uh, the song of Moses is sung in Exodus chapter 15 uh, and so it's a song of deliverance and praise for God's work that They've, uh, you know, crossed the Red Sea and the Red Sea has come and um, flooded over the Egyptians and killed them. And and now the people are free and they, they sing this song praising God for his victory and all those kind of things. But we also see that Deuteronomy 32 is also called uh, a song of Moses. And its focus is wrath, God's wrath against apostate Israel for its idolatry, for its uh, idolatry. So all of this kind of comes together to show us that the, they're singing this song of Moses, talking about the Exodus uh, that they are uh, they are a part of in this new uh, this new people of God coming out from the the wrath and judgment of of God on idolatry. Um, the song in uh, in uh, Revelation fifteen here it 
we're going to see the content of it in a moment, but it's not exactly parallel to the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. But what it does is it takes Old Testament texts, lots and lots of them, uh, and it just kind of cobbles them together, extolling God's greatness and his character and all those kind of things. So um, rather than giving you, I'm, I'm going to give you a few references, but rather than going verse by verse, word by word, line by line through the Song of Moses that they sing and telling you where they come from, it pretty much suffice to say that it is uh, several, several Old Testament texts that are put together to um, to uh, extol God's uh, greatness, His uh, victory, His power, His works, His His uh, deliverance of His people. But this song is also characterized as the song of the Lamb. Now, understand these are not two songs. They didn't sing one song of Moses and one song of the Lamb. This is one song, the song of Moses and the Lamb. They uh, they sing praises to God for the Lamb's victory over the beast, uh, uh, the people of the Lamb coming out from their oppressors in the new exodus. But uh, you see the roles have been reversed here, and, and the remnant of God's people who are in Christ is being delivered from adulterous Judaism who has broken the covenant, the old covenant of God. And so this, uh, this song is uh, characterized by Moses and the Lamb. And here's the song. It's in the last part of verse 3. In verse 4, it says, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glory your, your name? You, For you al- alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteousness has been revealed. Basically, the, the song can be summed up in three three. Um, headings uh, God's sovereign ways his sovereign ways are great and righteous uh, that's what just means it means righteous it means he is doing right and bringing this wrath uh, God's holy name will be feared and worshiped uh, this is what was not going on in, in either pagan Roman society or in Jerusalem that's very important for us to remember uh, a lot of times you know, we have a hard time thinking that God's pouring his wrath out on this people that he had made covenant with. But remember what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. Uh, the uh, the national Israel with its old covenant system has refused the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've refused the Messiah. They've refused the sacrifice to which all the other sacrifice pointed to. Therefore, they are worshiping a different God. They are engaged an idolatrous worship rather than worshiping the Father through the Son. And so it says here, you know, it's showing us that His holy name is going to be worshiped. It's going to be feared. And God's righteous acts they're now revealed. They're now coming to fruition. It's the gospel that has made his grace and his wrath known. Um, the song includes all kind of texts. I, I told you that before. You can see allusions to Deuteronomy 32, uh, Psalm 110, Psalm 85, Psalm 86, uh, Isaiah 66. Uh, uh, there's so many in there. It would take forever and a day for me to read all of them. So you can look at those. I've listed a few in the in the outline. But as we return now to the the angels and the plagues in verse uh, five, uh, what that was in in verse two through four was kind of an interlude showing the exodus of God's people uh, out of this out of this. Uh, um, 
judgment, out of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is falling, and these people who have received grace through the Lamb, through the sacrifice of Christ, are, are brought safely across the, the sea, so to speak, the Red Sea, as it, uh, as it is going to encompass uh, the, the oppressors. The next thing you see in verse 5 is the same thing that we have seen already before. It says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. Now remember, after these things does not necessarily mean that the chronological events of the opening of the ta- temple of the tabernacle happened after the people came come across the sea of uh, of, of whatever. Uh, what this is is the chronological sequence of the visions that John is given. He sees the people. Uh, standing on the sea, singing the song of Moses. And then in the next vision, he sees the temple of the tabernacle uh, open in heaven. Um, uh, So what we see is the the true tabernacle in heaven is referenced as being open. It's it's almost the exact phrasing as we have already seen in Revelation 11 verse 9. The temple is open in heaven. The, the God has condescended to man so that he can come uh, straight into the presence of God through the, uh, through the uh, sacrifice of Christ. It's open in heaven. And what's interesting to me is that here, even in this verse, uh, where he calls it the, he calls it the, in English it's kind of strange, he calls it the temple, uh, or the sanctuary, with the word, uh, the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony. It's the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. It's, it's almost like you wouldn't do that in English class, you know, you couldn't put all those, all those genitives all together. But he says it's the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. And so what he call what he, what he's saying there, the sanctuary of the tent of the testimony or the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony uh the basic covenant document of israel is the decalogue which is the ten commandments uh that was the uh god made covenant with israel he laid down the ten commandments and then you know it, it goes on from there in in exodus and, and leviticus and numbers and those things uh, but the basic the basic tenant the basic covenant document was that was the ten commandments the decalogue and it's often called the the Ten Commandments are often called quote the testimony in in the Old Testament. You can see that in Exodus chapter sixteen verse thirty four. You can see it in Exodus twenty five verse sixteen, uh, Exodus twenty five verse twenty one and twenty two, Exodus chapter thirty one verse eighteen. All these are written in the outline, so you don't have to scramble to write them down or whatever. Um, it's often called the testimony. This this decalogue. This uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. These laws. Uh, the the testimony was kept in the tabernacle. You probably remember the stories of uh, in in Exodus Moses comes down from the the you know the uh the Mount Sinai and breaks the 10 commandments and then has to go and God writes another set on tablets of stone. Well those tablets of stone were kept inside uh, the ark of the covenant were kept in the tabernacle. Uh and the tabernacle where the testimony was kept is called in the Old Testament the tabernacle of the testimony. I know that's um, it, you might have got lost in translation in there somewhere, but think of it this way: the tabernacle 
of the testimony is the an Old Testament reference to the place where the covenant document was kept. You can see it's called the Tabernacle of the Testimony in Exodus 38:21, in Numbers chapter 1 verse 50, uh, in Numbers uh, chapter 9 verse 15, and you can see Stephen referenced the Tabernacle of the Testimony in Acts chapter 7 verse 44. That's where Stephen's given his speech right before he's stoned to death. And so by using this language, uh, he is still pointing to the covenant of the old covenant of of Israel, uh, showing that that f- has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when he says in verse five, after these things, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. What he's doing is he's not just showing us, hey, guys, heaven's open. Y'all come on in. He is showing us that the old covenant has been fulfilled filled in Christ and that the the covenant has been kept the the covenant that God made with national Israel was fulfilled kept and completed by a national Israelite his name was Jesus Christ and he kept the law perfectly he kept the covenant perfectly and he offered his life as a sacrifice for the sins of uh, for the sins of the world so by calling it uh, by calling it the the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony uh, it was would have perked up some Jewish ears. It would have perked up some ears of people who were steeped in the Old Testament saying, uh, this is, so you're saying the the covenant, uh, the Old Testament covenant, the Decalogue, the, the basic covenant doc, document of Israel uh, is now open. This, this heavenly tabernacle where the, where the covenant document is kept is now open in heaven. And so it would have definitely raised up, uh, it would have definitely been astounded. To, for them to understand what he's saying is that the church is the true temple and that the temple of God, the true temple, the, the heavenly temple, the throne room of God, the place that Isaiah saw in uh, Isaiah chapter six, um, the, that that true temple is now open through Jesus Christ, that covenant that has uh, uh, been forsaken by uh, by the national Israel uh, is now fulfilled and perfected in the perfect Israelite. His name is Christ, and all those who are found in him uh, will be found in covenant uh, with God. And so when he, when he sees that this tabernacle of the testimonies open in heaven, it says, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues, we saw them in verse one, they came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Now, not only is it open in heaven, we saw that as well in Revelation eleven nine, but here, the tabernacle of the testimony, where the old covenant documents is kept, where, you know, the, in the Old Testament it was, and the idea of the, the Ten Commandments and the covenant of God, what comes out of the temple now is going to be wrath. What comes out of the temple now is going to be judgment. By showing this as the tabernacle of the testimony being opened in heaven and the angels coming out with these plagues shows that God's wrath has now been fulfilled. God's wrath is now full and it's about to be poured out on those who've broken covenant with God. And so Seven angels had seven plagues. They came out, and their clothing is interesting. Lots of discussions about their clothing. Uh, they're clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chest with golden sashes. Um, there are some who say that this is uh, the uh, the garments of the priests that that. that um, 
ministered in the temple. And, and indeed, there's a parallel to be made there, definitely. Um, but the language that is, all, is used here is also uh, almost exactly the same as the Son of Man seen in Revelation uh, 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. And so what you see here is the, the Son of Man acts as the priest among the 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 lampstands in chapter 1 and you see the uh the angels here the priests coming out of the temple of the of the testimony bringing wrath and judgment this judgment is coming from God himself it's coming from uh those who right now at the at the on the earth there were priests and high priests and all those things who were um who were uh ministering in the temple and and leading people to worship in the temple who were uh leading people away Away from God, actually, because the Messiah had fulfilled uh, all the stipulations of the old covenant and had given His blood uh, for the fulfillment of the new. Uh, but here, you see the true uh, ministers of God, the true uh, um, priests of the true temple. They're coming out, and they're not coming to—they're not coming to intercede for people. They're coming to bring judgment. They're coming to bring wrath, and they are dressed like the Son of Man. They're representing Him, representing uh, the true God, representing the true priests of the temple and the same garments are you know this same uh, description of garments is used in daniel chapter 10 verse 5 they're pictured as priests priests of the covenant uh, representing the son of man uh, who's now exalted in heaven and received the kingdom just as daniel 10 prophesied and they are given seven bowls uh, of god's wrath it says then one of the four living creatures this is verse seven gave the to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of god who lives forever and ever um these fiale, uh, the, the bowls, vials, you know, however it's translated in many different ways. But this this term, these these bowls, I'm just going to call them bowls. They referred to they referred to libation bowls that were used for drink offerings in the Old Testament. You can see that through the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, these drink offerings were poured out uh, at the daily sacrifice uh, after the trumpets sound. A coincidence that these come after the trumpets. What's being shown here throughout. The, throughout Revelation is that uh, is that these are mimicking the Old Testament, referencing and alluding to the Old Testament practices that are being completed and fulfilled in all these things. And so uh, these are the drink offerings, but yet now they are filled with the wrath of God. They're filled with the wrath of God that's going to be poured out, and they're going to be poured out in the next chapter. But these bowls also allude to Isaiah fifty one seventeen, uh, which talks about you know you can go look that up. But it talks about uh, wrath that is formerly on Israel that will be poured out on Babylon, and we see that here if we, as we've seen it so many times in Revelation already. Jerusalem is now characterized by Babylon, that great city uh, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, those kind of things in Revelation. And so we see them coming forth with God's wrath, and we're going to picture that God's God's wrath uh, in those bowls in the next chapter but before we get to that in verse 8 it says that the glory of the lord the smoke of the lord fills the tabernacle verse 8 says and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of god and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished now that's a kind of a scary scary vision uh you see the smoke of god the glory of god filling the temple so nobody could enter it uh several times in the old testament 
Um, in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, the tabernacle fills with smoke. It says uh, in Exodus 40, 34, it says, uh, then the cloud covering the tent of meeting, which was the tabernacle, and the, the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 5, the same thing happened in Solomon's temple. Uh, this is in the midst. I'm breaking in in verse 13 in Second Chronicles 5. It talks about the, the ministering and the singing going on. It says, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house... The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister before because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled uh, the house of God. And then uh, you also see the same sort of picture in Exodus, I mean, Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, we've seen uh, references between Revelation and Ezekiel over and over again, the four living creatures, uh, the seraphim and the cherubim and all those kind of things. It says in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse three, now the cherubim. Cherubim were standing, these are the four living creatures, on the right side of the temple when the man, this is the one like a son of man, entered and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And later in Ezekiel it's going to show the, the glory of the Lord departing from, from the temple. So what you see here is uh, several times in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord uh, filled the temple and the tabernacle. You see it. We saw it in Exodus with the tabernacle. We saw it in Second Chronicles with the temple. Uh, but what happened is that the glory of the Lord filled so that the priests could no longer minister. Moses could no longer go in. Moses couldn't go in as the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Um, we're not told exactly why. Maybe it was the radiance. Maybe it was the power. Maybe it was all those things. Things. But the point is that it's making here that there is going to be now that the, the wrath of God is full, the covenant has been broken, the covenant has been uh, 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 reneged on by the people. There is no more. There is no more intercession. There's no no one is going to be able to come in and minister in the temple and intercede for the people who are under God's wrath. That intercession has been completed. It was done as Jesus Hebrews tells us as Jesus entered into the holy of holies with his own blood that is the only intercession that god will uh, god will respect it's the only intercession that god will receive and we see him receiving it as the true people of god come across the sea and are being delivered in the midst of all of this wrath in the, the midst of all of these plagues but here we see that those who are under the wrath of god who have refused the messiah who have refused to take uh the fulfillment of um of the covenant uh, who have refused to take the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no intercession for them. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and no one could enter into the temple to intercede until that wrath is uh, is completed. And so next time we'll go into the bowls. We're coming toward the end. We're coming toward uh, several chapters that have a lot and a lot of controversy attached to them and different interpretations. So uh, you can be prepared for probably some longer discussions as we go forward.